This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. When people think about George Washington, they think first about, of course, being the first president of the United States, his military exploits, and of course the fact that he's well seen pretty much each and every day on the currency that we carry around. But what they don't immediately associate him with is being a great entrepreneur. And when you think back at it, the fact that many things that people knew back then were, were because of the fact that General Washington, President Washington, helped push them forward with some of the ideas that he was looking to bring to the country, then the concept of him being the first entrepreneur may not be that big of a shock. And that's the basis for the book of that name, First Entrepreneur, How George Washington Built His and the Nation's Prosperity. It is written by University of Virginia professor Edward Lengel, and he joins us on the phone right now. Professor, great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I... I I am somebody that when I'm getting ready to talk to an author of a book, I love the one of the first things I do and read is read the inside jacket of the book for that great little nugget. And you've got a great one in here. The fact that the United States was conceived in business, founded on business, and operated as a business. And that is something that I think a lot of people forget about when because when we talk about the United States we talk about freedom and you know so many other topics we don't think about business a- as being a basic entity to how this all started yeah it was unusual for me too i've been used to looking at washington and a different perspective but when i began to look at him as an entrepreneur and as a businessman i saw that first of all that was how he thought of himself and second that he identified the the country's interests with his own and when he became uh, both uh, general commanding the armies and president of the United States, he naturally thought of the country as a business. When he became president, he said, uh, building the national prosperity is my first and my only aim. So it was central to his approach. You have done uh, quite a bit of writing about uh, about George Washington. In fact, you're the, the director of the papers of George Washington uh, on the editorial staff. When did that transition moment, though, come to you in terms of thinking about President Washington in more than just the historical aspect, when you thought more about the business aspect of it? Well, it really only began a few years ago when my project decided to take a look at Washington's financial or business papers, which had never been published before. It's a huge collection of account books, ledgers, and all the rest, and we decided we're going to take these on and we're going to publish them and interpret them. And it opened a whole new window to his life. I mean, these are, these are not just records or you know, dreary accounts. They actually document the lifeblood of, him, of his family, his estate, and of the country. And it really shows how much time he spent on this, how important it was to him. The, the family aspect of it is interesting because you write about the fact that uh, that that he was a believer in, in trying to 
get people to create their own prosperity. And he even did that, I guess, in reading it, with some of his own family members as well, correct? Yeah, that's right. And I think it's something that came down uh, from his mother, actually, who really gets a bad rap. We think that she's a, she was a grouchy woman, but uh, she inculcated in him principles of, of thrift, diligence, uh, hard work, and I think she taught him this very basic principle that that industry and and morality really go together. That you know the moral man is industrious and vice versa. That building your own prosperity is in of itself you know a, an ethical thing to do. How difficult though was it for? Uh, President Washington to try and kind of take that philosophy and expand on it just from outside of his family and think of the country that obviously, you know, had just been developed, just been formed, and and really use that as kind of a philosophy to build up a lot of the United States back in those days. It was a challenge, especially as he first became president, because there was a lot of uh, political division, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, and he took kind of a more optimistic view to uh, leading the nation uh, of trying to uh, build up the national credit, to establish a stable currency, uh, to maintain and keep the peace, uh, to build the national infrastructure. But, but he especially focused on the currency and, and also wiping out uh, international debt. It was a huge challenge, especially the debt. He was uh, fortunate that he had uh, Hamilton to work with him. How much debt are we talking about? Uh, the equivalent uh, today would, I think, approach the trillions of dollars. Oh, geez. It, it, was, it was a crushing debt, that, uh, particularly to France and to the Netherlands, uh, after several years of war. Um, but he, he wiped it out after... Uh, by, let me think, by six years into his presidency, he had wiped out the national debt to France. How did he do that? Uh, He worked with Hamilton to uh, develop a revolving system of debt repayment to uh, gradually pay it off uh, through careful taxation, through managing the currency well, through establishing the national bank. Um, And in the process, you know, instead of trying to wipe out the uh, economy to pay off the whole debt all at once. Yeah. Uh, he was able to manage it over a series of years and so build up uh, the national credit. And Alexander Hamilton, uh, who we're speaking about, that that he is credited with a lot of, of the early, I guess, success of the U.S. economy. Uh, I, I guess then it, it's, it's a little bit surprising to a lot of people to not associate one with the other, considering that they are fairly tied closely at the hip. Yeah, that's right. Uh, And I also try to point out that although Hamilton certainly developed many of the concepts of how to implement the policy, Washington was the one who set the strategy, and he was the one who set the goals to be achieved. And uh, Hamilton really worked with him to carry it out. There were times when Washington was ready to strike down uh, Hamilton's ideas. He came up to within moments of vetoing the National Bank uh, that Mm. Hamilton established. Uh, But they worked as a team. The acumen for business, though, is very interesting because uh, if you think back now, without it, and obviously his work with with Alexander Hamilton, the country in its early years may have turned out quite a bit differently. Yeah, the, the country could have very well staggered 
into either ruin or stagnation, or it could have broken apart uh, both politically and, and physically. Uh, there was a lot of regional difference as well. And it was an important part of Washington's national uh, policy. It was tied in with his economic policy to bind the different parts of the nation together through commerce. I can't really can't overstate how important commerce was to him, both domestic and international. Well, and certainly when you're talking about, uh, and we're talking with Edward Langle, who is a University of Virginia professor, we're talking about his book, First Entrepreneur, How George Washington Built His and the Nation's Prosperity. When you think about it, you know, a country that is so new and trying to build itself out, trade with other countries is a, is a massively important piece. Yeah, Washington saw commerce as something that naturally contributed to peace. It contributed to unity. It contributed to peace. He coined a phrase, uh, communities of interest, uh, during the Revolutionary War, and he used it over and over and over again uh, with the idea that if people, uh, even with Native Americans, with foreign countries, with Northerners, Southerners, if they trade with each other, they will inevitably begin to see their common and shared interests, and they'll work together and be more peaceful as a result. But there also had to be, obviously, a, a level of trust that all of these other entities had with Washington. Uh, you know, you have to you have to take a person at, at, at his word and face value. Yeah, had it not been for his conduct during the war, I think, in handing in his commission at the end of the war and showing that he was a trustworthy person, uh, anybody else in that same position may not have been able to generate the same level of trust. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. We're talking about the new book from Edward Langle, First Entrepreneur, How George Washington Built His and the Nation's Prosperity. I guess going off of the title alone, General Washington, because of the fact that it's funny, because I I more refer to him as General Washington than I do as, <laughs> as President Washington, and probably a lot of people do to begin with, uh, you know. But but his prosperity is interesting in, in how it is tied to the country's prosperity as well. He began to develop that idea before the war, when uh, he began to see how the British mercantilist system, the colonial system held him down and also forced his uh, fellow Americans uh, to, to stay down as well. And, and the main thing was debt. He absolutely yeah. hated debt. It, it was probably right up there with uh, the trouble he had with Thomas Jefferson and the things that made him most anxious and worried. And the British colonial system forced uh, the American people into debt. And he began to see if he wanted to get out of debt, if he wanted to build, um, have an opportunity to build his own prosperity, then the nation, the American people, would need to throw off the colonial system. Washington didn't have a, a great formal education, uh, which you talk about. And, and I guess I get the sense that in, in many respects, that was actually a plus in, in this whole process. It's ironic because he felt so insecure about that lack of a formal education later on. Yeah. Um, so he didn't receive, because his father died when he was only 11, he didn't receive kind of the classical liberal arts education that most people did at that time. Instead, what he received was a very practical education that was based in things like accounting and mathematics and geometry and, and very the very practical, um, fundamental things that he needed to manage in a state. So in some respects, he, he had the early version of street smarts? 
Oh, that's right. Yeah, I mean, he, he had to be able to think on his feet. He had to be able to just plunge into uh, a problem and manage it right away instead of receiving all this kind of esoteric uh, learning and knowledge uh, and work f- down from there. You also talk about how how slavery uh, kind of plays a role in, in his thinking as well, and, and kind of, I guess, a, a transition in thought process over the course of his time, uh, you know, being such a, an important figure in our country? Yeah, there's no doubt about it that slavery can't really be pushed aside as an element of his life and his times, and certainly the enslaved people on his estate played a major role in building his prosperity. But it's interesting, as a young man, he simply accepted the system of slavery, like many of his contemporaries did. And I had always assumed that what turned him against slavery was kind of a moral revulsion after the Revolutionary War, that he just thought it was wrong to hold people in bondage. But actually, it began with a very basic calculation, is that if you hold people in bondage, you restrict them from that basic right to enjoy the fruits of their own labor. And therefore, what motivation do they have to work? What motivation especially do they have to innovate and to invest and to really think toward the future? So he began to think that slavery would not only hold him back, but it would hold the nation back in the long run. And it's interesting that it would take, what, you know, another 80, 90 years for it to really come to a head. And, and, and you know, obviously with President Lincoln, slavery, slavery being abolished. Yeah, there's no doubt, though, that Washington would have much preferred that slavery was abolished before then. Yeah. If only for the very basic calculation, he thought that uh, the longer slavery lasted the more that the economy would stagnate uh, and that it would remain heavily agricultural uh, and very backward and uh, not not forward-thinking at all. You also talk about how some of the concepts that, that President Washington uh, thought about back then, that, that some of them actually would, would be fairly good concepts today as well. One of the most interesting ones is that I think he would have been a huge advocate of the Internet, uh, okay. if you think of that, because he was a big believer in, if you think in terms of business, in uh, gathering information, classifying information, and disseminating information and knowledge about business and about experimentation. Uh, he was a big believer in experimentation. But then if you go to fundamental principles, things like calculated risk-taking, uh, close study of uh, financial and economic problems, but then you, know, you move into them quickly and you make a decision uh, of careful account keeping, of transparency. All of those things really could be applied today in the 21st century. I'm guessing also that, that, uh, uh, that General Washington would be a big fan of IT security, considering the fact that, as you just said, he wasn't a big fan of, of the taxation and, and the debt that, that, uh, that early Americans had to deal with with the British. So, you know, you need to have that security, that level of, of, uh, of personal, uh, personal trust to be able to, to move forward. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, it's also interesting, too, that he was also an advocate of some industrial espionage when it went to, right. um, you know, overseas, because the British restricted the export of, of knowledge and manufacturers and other things and skilled labor 
And uh, Washington tried everything he could do to bend, if not break, rules to to steal industrial secrets from overseas. So we're not going to hear any leaking coming out of overseas from Edward Snowden about George Washington's policies? Uh, Probably not. (laughs) Okay. It would would be interesting, though, if if it did come out. Uh, We're talking with uh, Edward Langle, who is a University of Virginia professor. The book that he has written is called First Entrepreneur, How George Washington Built His and the Nation's Prosperity. You're more than welcome to join in the conversation to talk about the first president of the United States, 844-WHARTON is the number, 844-942-7866. What were the, when, when he was going through this whole process, what were, what were the biggest roadblocks that, that, that he was basically facing back then? Uh, do you mean as uh, he was building up his first estate? Exactly. Yeah, so the, the biggest obstacles were, again, the, the British mercantilist system what it forced American planners to do was to grow tobacco and to sell it through British agents on mm-hmm. British ships. It would be shipped overseas, and uh, they would then sell it on behalf of the planners. And what the planners would get in return was credit. They did not get cash. They got credit. And uh, they had to live on credit, use that credit to, to buy British manufactured goods. In fact, what they usually did is they used it to buy luxury goods because conspicuous consumption was uh, really a big thing in Washington's social class. Uh, the result of that, again, to get back to it, was debt. And, you know, we may tend to think that people at Washington's level had it easy, they could live high off the hog and relax. They, sh- they faced uh, fi- financial ruin almost on a daily basis. People at Washington's level were collapsing uh, and having to sell off their estates because they fell so deeply into debt. So it, it was a, a day-to-day problem he had to face. With all that, that, that President Washington kind of set up and, and, and did for the country, how much did the, the, the presidents that came immediately after him, how much did they benefit from all that he had done? Oh, I think it's clear that they benefited quite a lot. And Washington was completely successful in his goal which was to create a stable and solid foundation for future growth. Uh, again, to, to build a stable currency, to keep the peace, which unfortunately uh, some of his successors, as uh, Madison in the War of 1812, yeah. didn't, didn't maintain. But nevertheless, he had, he had brought the country to a level where it was stable and solid enough that it could grow uh, and weather uh, the storms that were bound to come. But did that, in all, also some respects, kind of change his thinking as being a military man as well? Well, he was a military man, but he was a combat veteran. And yeah. I don't think there's anybody who cares for peace more than, than uh, a combat veteran, uh, not because of pacifism necessarily, but because they understand what what war can do at, at all levels. And, you know, there should be no mistake, Washington as president was a profoundly a man of peace. He thought that, that keeping the peace was essential to giving the country a chance, giving Amer- the American people a chance to uh, grow their wealth. We're talking with uh, Edward Langall, University of Virginia professor. We're talking about his new book, First Entrepreneur, How George Washington Built His and the Nation's Prosperity. Uh, I guess then from when, when you think about that period of time uh, and, and the country being so new and, and, and so many things being 
developed even as we speak. Uh, is there a piece that that in reading his papers that maybe uh, General Washington didn't get completed that he probably would have liked to? Uh, certainly the, the slavery issue was never perfectly resolved yeah. uh, during his lifetime. Uh, he would have liked also primarily to maintain uh, political stability. Uh, he saw the development of political faction uh, as also being detrimental to uh, national peace and domestic peace. And uh, he left the presidency at the end of his second term, really an, an embittered man, as he saw the Jeffersonians and the Hamiltonians at each other's throats. Uh, he thought that they should be willing to work together for a common purpose. So uh, that was something probably he would consider his greatest failure. But it wasn't really his fault. The shame of it is is that that, that, that working together, that commonality, we still don't have it today. So no. <laughs> you know, he, he'd be really frustrated today, I think. Yeah, he saw partisanship and, and faction uh, and, and also the lack of, of decorum uh, as, as being really fundamental evils. He thought men, like Jefferson and Hamilton, he would keep telling them, look, I know that you disagree with each other violently. I know that even personally you dislike each other. But you should be willing to subvert those for the common purpose and the common cause, which they did not. It is a, it is a very uh, entertaining book. And, and the interesting thing, I guess, is that, as you said before, these were all uh, uh, manuscripts, papers that had not been released before, correct? They had never been published before, and uh, they're going to be available to the public for free uh, online uh, when we finish them this summer. Uh, at the end of the summer, uh, you can go through the Mount Vernon website, and you'll be able to explore all of his financial papers, uh, get down into the depths of his business dealings, and hmm. see how he managed everything. It's 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 great work, and uh, obviously it was it was fun to have you on and, and talk a little bit about this. Uh, it, I think people at, at times forget. Uh, forget about our history. We're so much in the now these days that we forget about how these things kind of all started many, many years ago. And, you know, it, it's good to have this historical perspective. You obviously have written quite a bit about it. So, I mean, this is something, this is a true, a true passion for you. Oh, yeah, I enjoy it very much. Uh, but I think, too, from Washington's perspective, that he recognized that everything that he did on the national level would be an example, not just for his contemporaries, but for people of future generations. And, and even on a global perspective, I would guess, too, right? Yeah, that's quite right. 844 Wharton is the number to give us a call. 844 942 7866. How much, how tough of a process was it for him to develop, you know, realistically a, a working business relationship with the British after? After the war, you know that's a great question because the the um, tendency both for him and his fellow Americans emotionally was to look toward the French yeah. as uh, trading partners. But Washington was a realist and he studied very carefully uh, the French economy and the British economy. He saw the French were still very backward, whereas the British were by far the most advanced. Uh, economically uh, nation in the world, both their agricultural revolution, their developing uh, industrial revolution. He sent people over to Great Britain. He had friends among the British manufacturing class. He studied them carefully, and he saw that we really needed to both emulate the British and trade with the British and learn from the British 
uh, if we were to become a great nation. It, it was a practical decision. It infuriated a lot of Americans, such as Jefferson. Jefferson was not a realist on this. Um, but Washington moved ahead with it anyway, and, and we're fortunate that he did. Uh, we really needed to follow the British example. Great to have you on the show today. Thanks very much, Edward, for coming on. My pleasure. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.